chapter 10, and verse 28. <clears throat> Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you love us, that you care for us. You're so good to us. Lord, for your promises that where two or three are gathered, that you're in our midst. The promise of eternal life, that you'll never leave us or forsake us. And we come into your presence with thanksgiving. We also ask, God, that you would just allow us to be attentive, attentive to your word. That we could really have our hearts touched and impacted. And we know that lasting change only comes through you. So we're seeking you. We're here to draw near to you. You know us each specifically and individually. Would you do that work in our hearts and lives? And Father, would you give me grace and strength and teaching your word, just set me aside. We pray that you would be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Undone, something left undone. I think of half-cooked chicken. That's about the worst, isn't it? You go to cut open that chicken breast after it being on the barbecue, and there's just something about chicken that's absolutely disgusting if it's not cooked all the way. So you put it back on the barbecue, and it does get cooked, and then you bring it back in, but you've been ruined, haven't you? Your, your stomach's been turned, and you know it's potential Ralph Fest 2013, right? Nobody wants half-cooked chicken. How about this? A half-fixed car by the mechanic. That's almost as bad as half-cooked chicken. You get your car back, you've invested some money into it, hey, everything's good to go, and then all of a sudden, here's another problem back to the mechanic for another five to a thousand dollars, five hundred to a thousand dollars. How does the IRS feel if you give them a partially filled out tax return? Doesn't go so well, right? That, that baby is going to get sent right back to you. A project. How many projects do we have at home that are 90% completed, right? That last 10% is so hard to complete. Inevitably, you start another project before that one project is finished, and then two or three or four projects are going, and they're 90% completed, and something is left undone. And all you can see is that 10% that's unfinished. Or how about a partially committed relationship? It's kind of a half-done relationship. So are you guys dating or, no, we just kind of like each other, you know? It's like, well, you've been dating for five years. What are you going to do? You know, what are you waiting for? For the sun and moon to stand still? Make a call, right? Now I'm getting myself in trouble. Partially undone. But when we find in the scriptures here, in Joshua 10 and into 11, is this, that Joshua left nothing undone that God had given him to do. That he finished the work that God had called him to. And that's the challenge that's there for us. Now our approach of Bible study is going to be different this morning. I'm largely going to read the text of chapter 10, the end of chapter 10, and through chapter 11. And I'm going to ask that you would read with me. And I'm just going to make a few comments as we go through. And then when we're done reading, we're going to pull out four primary things that we're going to spend our time on. We're going to deal with an objection and also with an application. So there's four phrases as we read through this text together that you might want to underline or take note of as we go through. The first is, the Lord delivered the edge of the sword. He let none remain and utterly destroyed. God gives us an account of how Joshua went and conquered the northern and southern kingdoms. So you guys ready? 
Here we go, verse 28. On that day, Joshua took Makeda and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He utterly destroyed them, all the people who were in it. He let none remain. He also did to the king of Makeda as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua passed from Makeda and all of Israel with him to Libna, and they fought against Libna. And the Lord also delivered it and its king into the hand of Israel. He struck it and all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword. He let none remain in it, but did to its king as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua passed from Libna and all of Israel with him to Lachish, and they encamped against it and fought against it. Then the Lord delivered Lachish into the hand of Israel, who took it on the second day and struck it, all the people who were in it, with the edge of the sword, according to all that he had done to Libna. So you get the idea. It's going from city to city, and God is giving the victory, swinging the sword. Everyone is utterly destroyed. So this continues through the next few verses, and we'll fast forward and pick up in verse 40. So go with me to verse 40. So Joshua conquered all the land, the mountain country, the south, the lowland, the wilderness slopes, and all of their kings. He left none remaining, but utterly destroyed all that breathed, as the Lord God of Israel had commanded. And Joshua conquered them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza. Kadesh Barnea, does that ring a bell? This is the place of defeat the first time around for the nation of Israel. When they came to the land, sent in the 12 spies... Ten spies come back with a report of unbelief. Only Joshua and Caleb report faith, and the nation turns away in unbelief. So the place of unbelief came the place of victory, Kadesh Barnea. And all the country of Goshen, even as far as Gideon, Gibeon, all these kings and their land, Joshua took at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. God's the one who brought the victory. Then Joshua returned and all of Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. So chapter 11, verse 1. And it came to pass when Jabin, king of Hazor, heard these things, that he sent to Jobab, king of Nabdon, and a whole list of other kings. And you can read those for yourself there in the rest of verse 1, 2, and 3. And I'll spare you the pain of me slaughtering their names. But it's a host of kings coming against Israel, probably the largest alliance of kings to this point. Verse 4, so they went out, they and all their armies with them, as many people as the sand that is on the seashore and the multitude, with very many horses and chariots. You go to the ocean, you go to the beach, you see the sand there on the seashore, you can't possibly count it. And that's the idea here. You look out on this army with the horses and the chariots, you can't even begin to number it. Verse 5, And when all of these kings had met together, they came and camped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. But the Lord said to Joshua, don't be afraid because of them, for tomorrow, about this time, I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. Just like last week, God speaks at the perfect time to Joshua. As he would be afraid, the Lord spoke to him and said, don't be afraid, tomorrow I'm going to bring this victory. God has more instruction for Joshua. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all the people of war with him came against them suddenly by the waters of Merom, and they attacked them, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel, 
who defeated them and chased them to the greater Sidon, to the brook Mizroth, the valley of Mizpah. Eastward they attacked them until they left none of them remaining. So Joshua did to them as the Lord had told him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. So please note God's instructions and Joshua's obedience because we will spend some time on that. In verse 10, Joshua turned back at that time and took Hazor and struck its king with the sword for Hazor was formerly the heads of all of those kingdoms. And they struck all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying them. There was none left remaining. Then he burned Hazor with fire. So all the cities of those kings and all their kings, Joshua took and struck with the edge of the sword. He utterly destroyed them as Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded. But as for the cities that stood on the mounds, Israel burned none of them except Hazor only, which Joshua burned. And all the spoil of these cities and the livestock the children of Israel took as booty for themselves, but they struck every man with the edge of the sword until they destroyed them, and they left none remaining. Now here's a key verse in verse 15, if I've lost you. Are you with me? Still with me? All right, all three of you, praise the Lord. So, <laughs> Verse 15, as the Lord had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. In verse 16, thus Joshua took all this land, the mountain country, all the south, all the land of Goshen, the lowland, the Jordan plain, the mountains of Israel and its lowlands, from Mount Halak and the ascent of Seir, even as far as Baal Gad and the valley of Lebanon between Mount Hermon, he captured all the kings and struck them down and killed them. Joshua made war a long time with all these kings. Sometimes when you read Joshua at a quick read, you might think this is just instant victory. Jericho, AI, here it is, sun stands still, it's over, it's a matter of weeks. But notice this took a long time. It was a long time of battling against the enemy. Some see the promised land as heaven, that Jordan's death. So we pass through the Jordan at death and we come in to the promised land. But that can't be the case because there's so many battles inside of the promised land and heaven's not going to be a place of battles. It's going to be a place of rest in the presence of God. So what is the promised land? It's God's promises that he gives to us that we have to take by faith. He's already given them, but we have to inherit them through faith as we walk in obedience to God's word. And that process is a long battle. Agreed? As we continue in life and walking with the Lord, we'll be fighting that battle until we go home to be with the Lord. Verse 19, there was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon, all the others they took in battle. Remember the Gibeonites made peace with Israel through deception. So verse 20, for it was of the Lord to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle, that he might utterly destroy them. And they might receive no mercy, but that he might destroy them as the Lord commanded Moses. So God hardened the hearts of the enemies to come against Israel. Verse 21, at that time Joshua came and cut off Anakim from the mountains. And it lists once again the cities that Joshua destroyed. We pick up in verse 23, our last verse. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had said to Moses. 
And Joshua gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their division by tribes. Then the land rested from war. So Joshua wins the battle in totality, and then he gives the land to the tribes, and the tribes are to go in with the mop-up operation, and that's where the tribes failed. And that's where we see some of these enemies continuing to dwell in the land and being a snare to the children of Israel. Well, guys, Lord bless you. Have a great week. That's the quickest I've ever gone through a chapter and a half, right? No, I'm just getting started. That's my introduction, right? So now let's break this apart. First, the objection. You guys thought, wow, an early lunch. I saw some of your faces, right? So what's the objection in this text? And you're saying, Eric, what are you talking about? An objection. Well, the objection is this, is how could a loving God who's full of mercy, who's given his son to die upon the cross for us, command Joshua and the Israelites to go through this whole region and destroy, utterly destroy, city after city after city. And so we wrestle with that, the the judgment of God. And I'd like for us to consider something that's happening in our culture, is there is a huge pressure for God to be politically correct. And there's some of you that would want God to be more politically correct. And it makes you very uncomfortable that God in his justice brings judgment. So God, I want you to be PC, politically correct. And in this endeavor of God being more politically correct and wrestling with God's judgment, there's churches right now throughout America and there's pastors and pulpits and books that are being written that you can pick up in different places that are really trying to minimize the judgment of God to the point where some will say this, that judgment isn't final in this life. So you don't believe in Christ, you reject Christ, you mock Christ throughout your whole life. You will go to a place of punishment, but then in that place of punishment, over time, you'll have another opportunity to receive Christ and ultimately go to heaven. Now that's going to make a lot of people feel a lot more comfortable because we do have a hard time with God's judgment in thinking about loved ones that don't know Christ and die in that state and then being eternally separated from God. So it's much easier for us to go, well, maybe God will give them another chance. And though that's more politically correct, it's not biblically correct. And Jesus made it very clear in his teachings. He talked about hell more than he talked about heaven. And he told us that All those who believe in John 3, they're saved. But those who don't believe are condemned already. He didn't say, well, it's no big deal if you don't believe in this life. You'll get another chance in eternity. That's not anywhere in scripture. That's a politically correct idea. It's not a biblical correct idea. Also in this area of God's judgment, it's too big of a pill for some people to swallow that Jesus is the only way to heaven. So they go, well, God's loving and he's merciful And so there must be multiple ways to heaven. Again, that's politically correct, but it's not biblically correct. Christ's words, John 14, verse 6, what does he say? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's not like hiking Pikes Peak, where you can take a lot of different trails, and they ultimately all lead to the top. Not all roads lead to the Father. Only Jesus Christ leads to the Father. He's the way. He's the only way for salvation. 
And this then trickles into a lot of other areas of what we believe. And before you know it, you can have stopped to adopt what culture says instead of what God's word has to say. For example, some will attach God to this is that as long as people love each other, that any kind of relationship is okay. That now the moral, the holy, the biblical definition for a relationship isn't actually what God said in his word, but it's what they love each other. So it really doesn't matter if they're married or not. It really doesn't matter if it's man with man, woman with woman. They, they love each other. And so, hey, we're, we're for this. Well, God actually says in his word, what are his guidelines for sexual relationships? Now catch this. This is crazy, but God created sex. And I know that just blows your mind a little bit, but he actually created it to be inside of the commitment between a husband and a wife in marriage. So if you're married, husbands and wives, men and women, guess what? Go for it inside of the commitment of marriage. It's good. The marriage bed is honorable. And I heard some amens from the husbands and little this and that. See, God has a plan, doesn't he? He wants us to have life and to have it more abundantly. So it's not that sex is bad. It's that sex is good inside of God's plan that he has given to us. And anything outside of that, I'm not picking on one particular area of sexual sin, but all of it, all of it outside of God's plan, it's going to bring destruction. So we begin to look at these different areas, whether it's God's judgment or it's relationships and church, we're forced to make a decision. Are you more concerned about being politically correct or biblically correct? And what is it? I would much rather choose to be biblically correct, to say I'm going to align my life and thoughts and beliefs after what God says in his word, not what man says in society. And so let's look at this and let's talk about it and let's think about it. Why does God order judgment on so many cities and complete destruction. You have to remember God had given 400 years for them to repent. God is much more long-suffering than any of us would ever be when it comes to judgment. These nations are walking in wickedness. They're sacrificing their kids in idolatry, actually burning them alive. And there does get a point for a society where God says that's enough. You've crossed enough of my boundaries where now you're in a place where my judgment has to come. And think of it in this way and in this light is a few years ago, I went and did a ride along with a police officer in our church and I've done it a handful of times. If you get an opportunity to do it, go for it. I think it really helps to see what our police officers are doing for us in our community. But on this particular Friday evening, there was a young man who was in a domestic dispute with his wife or girlfriend, out of control, beating her, all of these things. So the police intervene, the police are called, the police show up, and he's in the back of the police car with the handcuffs, right? And he decides that he wants to try to kick out all the windows in the police car. Not a good idea, right? So the police officer, with control and with authority, says, you know what? You may want to settle down and stop kicking the windows, or I'm going to have to fog you. I'm going to have to get the mace and put the mace on you, and that, that's what's going to have to take place. Well, the guy got more mad and starts kicking even harder on the windows in the back of the cop car. So guess what? He got fogged, and all of a sudden, he's laying on the pavement, crying for his mama, and all this pain, right? wasn't all this tough guy after he got the the mace in the face. 
And I did not feel sorry for him. I got to tell you what, I wasn't like, oh man, the police officer, what is he doing? And this abuse of justice, it's like, this guy had it coming and he asked for it, right? So why do we view God as the bad guy? Why do we think it's unjust for a just God to bring about judgment upon wickedness? View him more like a sheriff. That it's the sheriff's job to keep order, to keep things going in the right direction. We also have to have integrity and honesty in this. Let's be honest about our country. Our country is headed towards God's judgment. And we need to be praying for a great awakening and a revival that involves repentance. And I think that's the hope for America. It's repentance and it's turning back to the Lord. Because we can look historically at civilizations that are making similar decisions that we're making, and ultimately God's judgment comes, and many times it simply looks like this. God takes his hand of blessing and protection off. And we are allowed to reap what we've sown, and it just begins to come unraveled at that point. If I'm honest, I got to tell you, I'm not nearly as concerned or have a difficulty with God's judgment upon wickedness as God's sacrifice for wickedness. Because God is within his right, in his holiness, to bring judgment upon wickedness. What's amazing about God is that he would send his son to die for my wickedness. That Jesus would pay the price. Because for God to be gracious and merciful, he couldn't just wink at my sin and say, oh, well, boys will be boys. Just forgive Eric today because I feel like being benevolent. For God to be just, Jesus had to die on the cross for my sin. Jesus took the punishment, the wrath of the Father for my sin. It's an important aspect to our theology and understanding of God, of his holiness and his judgment upon sin and understanding that Jesus took the judgment for us upon the cross. So as we deal with the difficulty of God's judgment in this text, we understand God's holiness. And in his holiness, he's justified in bringing the consequences for sin. Well, now let's look at the application. And you're like, oh, I thought he'd never get off of that point. I brought my friend and they're really uncomfortable. And, uh, you know, well, I'm moving on. You can breathe easy now. So here's the application, and, and this comes right from the text that, that we read, and you may want to write these four things down and meditate upon them. The first is that victory comes from the Lord. Did you notice, time and time again, what did we read? The Lord delivered. The Lord delivered. God fought for Israel. God hardened the heart of the enemy to come and attack Israel, this alliance of kings. We need to understand as we fight battles spiritually and with our own flesh, that victory comes from the Lord. It doesn't come from us. It comes from God. In Zechariah 4, verse 6, it says, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Says the Lord. It's not by your power. It's not by your might. It's not by you trying harder. It's by the spirit of God. And I hope you don't miss this, is Christianity is not rules and regulations. It's not, okay, gang, be better, do better, try harder. Christianity is a relationship with a loving and living God. And as we're in relationship with him, he transforms us. He's the vine, we're the branches. We connect and we abide in Jesus. And he does that work in and through our lives where it's very clear the victory has come from God. How well does behavior modification work for you? 
oh, you know, I'm going to work harder. I'm going to love more. I'm going to be more joyful. Praise the Lord. I'm a joyful Christian. And by Sunday evening comes, we're angry and disgruntled and bitter. And it's like, oh, why do I even try? So what are you saying? You know, what am I saying? Am I saying don't try? No, I'm saying put the focus on a relationship with Jesus. Put your effort into worshiping him, abiding in him, walking with him. Because the victory comes from the Lord. It's the Lord who delivers. Find out what God is doing and follow him. Victory comes through relationship. The second application that we see from our text this morning is use your sword. Use your sword. Again, it's repeated, so we're to pay attention to it. The edge of the sword. The edge of the sword. The edge of the sword. Is God doing this to be graphic? I mean, we get it. You went into the city. You got your sword out. Everyone was utterly destroyed. Do you have to say it over and over again? Or is God making a point? little pun on word. Edge of the sword. Making a powerful point. Yeah, he is. Because we today are in a battle, but it's not physical. It's spiritual. Don't go out and get up a gun and take on arms and do those kind of things. You know, I, I look at some of this with abortion clinics and someone deciding to take a gun and, and go out and, and kill the abortion doctor. That's not the way to fight that battle. The battle is spiritual. In Ephesians 6, verse 12, it says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers, against the rules of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Now in the new covenant, the battle is spiritual and it's not physical. And the weapon that we've been given in fighting that spiritual battle is the sword of God's word. And as they use the physical sword, we use the spiritual sword to fight against the enemy. When Jesus was tempted by Satan, Satan's attacking him, how did Jesus counteract that in Matthew chapter 4? He used the word of God every time. Short sections that Jesus had in his heart, and he used it in those particular moments. He gave us a model that we can follow. Jesus didn't quote Psalms 119, the largest chapter in the Bible. He didn't quote, you know, this huge section of the law. He quoted a small verse. Use the word of God when you come in contact with those spiritual battles, with Satan, with the demonic realm. But there's also another battle that we face, and it's with our own flesh. I'm my own greatest enemy. I don't want to minimize the fact that Satan attacks and there's a real battle there, but I also know that I get myself in the most trouble, and you would probably agree. And Romans 6 verse 12 tells us, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lust. God says with our flesh that it has to be crucified, our sinful nature, that tendency to walk in sin and rebel against God. Don't flirt with it. Don't be cute with it. Get out your sword and go after your flesh. As we know those areas of struggles that we have and saying, I'm going to find out what God's word has to say. And when I'm tempted, I'm going to quote and use the word of God and submit to the word of God. Write down Hebrews 4 verse 12, because that's where God points to the power of his word. Many other places as well, but I'm going to focus on Hebrews 4 verse 12. It says, for the word of God is living and powerful sharper than any two-edged sword. So Joshua was using the edge of the sword one edge, we're to use the two-edged sword of God's word. And God says his word is living and it's powerful. It'll do the work against the enemy Satan. It'll do the work against our own sinful flesh. And God goes on to describe the power of the word. 
piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of thoughts and intents of the heart. God's word is so powerful that it can actually pierce in between your soul and your spirit. Now, what's your soul? Your soul is your mind, your emotion, your will. It's tangible. You know your mind. I know my, my mind. Our spirit is our inner man. It's not tangible. It's what's going to live forever and eternity. We go to heaven to be with the Lord, and then God gives us a glorified body. I can't divide my soul and spirit, can you? I don't know where my soul stops and my spirit begins, but God says his word is so powerful and so exacting that it can actually convict and pierce and do a work in between our soul and our spirit. Do you know any other book that can do that? And I know you've felt it. At times when you've been in Bible study like this together as a church family or reading God's word on your own, God's word just gets in there. And it's, ah, it hurts. God, you're convicting me. You're piercing me. You're destroying my flesh right at this particular moment. Sometimes God comes and he brings healing and he brings comfort through his word. His word's powerful and it comes right in there in between our our spirit and our soul. Also our joints and marrow. We know what our joints are and the marrow is that that tissue inside of the bone, the flexible tissue in the interior of the bones. And think about the New Testament times. They don't have x-rays. They don't have MRIs and all these other things that, that we have. And they wouldn't know the mystery of what inside of a joint looked like. But they did know that there was the marrow that was inside of the joint. And it's an illustration to show how powerful God's word is so that it can get in there and do its work. But also it is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. We can put on a face so easily to so many people, but when we're in God's word, we're naked before God. And God begins to deal with the thoughts and the intents of our heart, the motivations of our heart. Church, this is why it's so important that we're committed to be in the word of God together corporately and individually. We're going to be a sitting duck in the battle that we're in if we don't have our sword. And I mean this lovingly, but if you're not engaged with the sword of God's word, look out. And it's time to pick up your sword and fight that battle. Have you noticed the spiritual battle when it comes to coming to church? Why is it so easy to go to the movies or Starbucks or the Rockies game? There's no spiritual battle when you go up to the Rockies game. But all of a sudden you try to get your whole family to church and hell breaks loose, you know? And the flesh just starts raging war. And it's like, should I go to church or stay home and make waffles? Waffles sound really good, you know? I went to bed last night and I just told my wife, I'm not going tomorrow. I just don't feel like it. No, no, I didn't. I didn't say that. But but there are those times, Saturday night, Sunday morning, where Satan's really attacking me. If there's any night of the week in our home where the kids aren't going to sleep, it's Saturday night. Because I got a job to do Sunday morning to come and give God's word. And we're all going to be attacked when it comes to be committed to being in God's word together. How come it's so easy to spend 15 minutes reading the news, you know, to to spend a half hour reading the sports online, 
But then it's so hard to spend 15 minutes in God's word because Satan doesn't want you in the word of God. So we've got to fight through all of that. We've got to get in God's word. We've got to read it. We've got to know it and break it down to use it. Get a small section of scripture and meditate upon it so that when we're dealing with the enemy and we're dealing with our own flesh, we grab our sword and we swing both ways. Church, grab your sword and swing both ways. Try it, believe it, hold on to it. It's living and powerful. The victory comes through the word of God as we hold on to it. The next application is finish the work. Over and over again in the text, we find that Joshua left nothing remaining. He utterly destroyed nothing undone of all that God had commanded Moses. What's at stake if they don't finish this work? Deuteronomy 7 said these nations will be a snare to you because of the idols. And we find that to be true because the tribes left their job undone. But Joshua did his job unto the Lord. There's two ways we need to finish the work. If you're taking notes or thinking this through with me. First is God's calling on our life. God has called each and every one of us. He's given us gifts and talents, spouses, children, friends, placed us in workplaces and neighborhood. He's got a job for us to do, things that he's ordained for us to do before the foundation of the work. And we want to finish that work. But we also want to finish the work of dealing with sin and temptation in our lives. So finish the calling, but also finish the struggles that we may have. And Paul finished the calling upon his life. In 2 Timothy 4, verse 7 and 8, he says, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. He knew God had put a race before him, and he finished the work, just like Joshua. And for us to realize our relationship with God is a marathon, and God, I'm committed to running this race that you have for my life. And wouldn't it be great, upon our deathbed, to have that peace of knowing, I'm not perfect Paul wasn't perfect. Joshua wasn't perfect. But I finished what God gave me to do. I got back up when I failed and I was faithful to what the Lord had for me. Is there something that the Lord has asked you to do that you've given up on? Maybe something that he's shown you in the last few months, the last few years. Go back just a couple years, a couple of months and go, you know, God really did show me. He did really ask me to reach out to my neighbor in this way or to, to do this for my kids or to serve this way amongst his family inside of the church of God and go, okay, Lord, I want to be faithful to that work. But also, we want to finish the work when it comes to our flesh. Because this is the reality for Joshua. If he doesn't finish off the enemy, the enemy's going to finish him off. And if we just kind of go with those battles with sin and say, I'm going to go 80%, but I'm not going to go all the way. Look out. It's going to destroy you. It's going to destroy me. Maybe the battle's lust and the battle's pornography. And you'd say, you know, I've really dealt with pornography in my life, but for some reason you can't go all the way. You've still got it on your phone. It's your little reserve. You're going to go to it. In those times of discouragement, in those times of temptation, it's the mistress that's there and you'll use it when you need it. And maybe it's three, six months, a year. And you go, well, I haven't looked at pornography for nine months now, but yet you can't go all the way. You got a stash in your garage. You got a stash in your car. You've just got a stash. You know it. And yet you can't follow through and get rid of it and then put accountability on your phone. They've got some great accountability software for our computers and and for our phones, for the iPads and all those things to where you go to an inappropriate site and guess what? It's going to email your wife. It's going to email your husband. Church, we've got to wake up. This is not just a male issue anymore. 
There's ladies as well that are engaging in pornography. There's the young gals of our church that now are in this as well and saying, I've got to take this next step and I've got to go for it. I've got to get serious about it. You've got to destroy it. You've got to go all the way and finish the work or it'll destroy you. Maybe it's this person. You've still got her phone number. You've got his number. Oh, I'm committed to my spouse, but for some reason, you can't just break off that contact. And you know this person gets your attention in an inappropriate way. You can't unfriend them on Facebook. You can't delete them. You can't change your phone number. You can't take that last step. You can't put them to death in a sense. And Jesus is very clear. He said, I want you to crucify your flesh. This enemy that we face, Satan, but also our flesh, don't let it reign in your, in your body. Crucify your flesh unto the Lord. Maybe it's anger. Going, you know what? I'm not as bad as I used to be. And I can't deal with my anger completely because I kind of like it. And I have control over people. Plus, I'm Irish, and I'll lose part of my ethnicity if I, if I really deal with my anger. I mean, we come up with all kinds of stuff, don't we? I just, I'm not going to let it go. It's bitterness. It's holding on to us. We've, been, we've forgiven some, but we're going to hold on to this right to be angry at them and run them under the bus at every possible turn and, and opportunity. And God's saying, no, you've got to finish the work before the sin destroys you. Use the sword. Go for it. Go for a complete victory in the Lord. Last point of application for us is depend upon God. Depend upon God. God told Joshua, I want you to burn the chariots and I want you to hamstring the horses. What in the world's that? To actually cut the hamstring of the muscle on the horses. The horses would be no good for battle any longer. Good for farming, but would not be good for battle would be crippled in that sense. It's a clear message that God is saying and God is declaring, I don't want you depending upon your own resources. I want you to depend upon God. God told the future kings of Israel in Deuteronomy 17, don't multiply horses unto yourself. There's something inside of us that continually says, God, I got this. I can do it. I'll depend on my own resources instead of you. Paul wrote to Timothy and he said this, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives richly all things to enjoy. Consider this. Where is your trust right now? Is it in a bank account or is it in the living God? God says that riches are uncertain. We should know that after 2008 in our economy. Money has a great way of getting wings and flying off, doesn't it? And so God says, hey, it is uncertain. So we can't put our trust in money. We should manage money well to the glory of God. We should be wise. But even after doing that, don't make the mistake of putting the trust in our own horses. It may not be a bank account. It may be your own strength. It may be your intellect. It may be your talents. It may be your ability to to go to work. It may be your looks. I don't struggle with that, but some people do, you know. (laughs) But we know. I was reminded of how little strength I really have yesterday afternoon. I decided to go for a little jog, a little run in my neighborhood. And it's great, the first part of the run, because it's all downhill. I feel pretty powerful on the way down, right? And then, of course, it's all uphill 
on the way home. And I'm coming up the last, you know, quarter mile or so, and there's a mom with her two young kids, probably a three-year-old and a five-year-old. They're walking up the sidewalk, and I'm running on the street thinking nothing of it. But then all of a sudden, these two little kids, they decide that they want to run with me and race me, you know? <laughs> and so the mom just lets them do it. She's like all, all for it. And I'm huffing and I'm puffing, trying to get up the hill. And my first reaction is, I'm not going to let these kids beat me, you know? <laughs> I'm going to turn on the afterburners and strut my stuff, Right? And I thought, that's, that's pretty lame. I can't let the pride get the best of me. And then I had another thought. Why don't I just go at my normal pace and I'll, I'll kind of get a good perspective, an outward perspective of how fast I'm really running. And I got to tell you, I beat the two-year-old. But, <laughs> but the five-year-old, she beat me, you know? And she got to the corner first and her mom had her stay there to, to, to watch for traffic. And I knew I was slow, but I didn't realize I was that slow. You know what I'm saying? And so there's those times when we need God to just open up our hearts and say, you know what? All the money in the world doesn't even come close to trusting God. And are you trusting God? Your talents, your abilities, well, first they're God-given and they're, they're God-sustained, but don't trust those things. Trust in God. Depend upon God. In closing, imagine you're with me at Memorial Hospital. We've got a call from a friend. It's a close friend of ours. He's in his early 60s. He says, you got to get to the hospital right away. He doesn't even have the strength in his voice to tell us what's going on. So we rush down to the hospital. We get there at the same time. We go to the critical care unit at Memorial Hospital downtown If you've been there, you can picture it in your mind. You know the very spot. And we see our friend. There's blood that's all over his shirt. And it's the blood of his son. His hair is completely messed up as he's been running his hands through his hair. He's sobbing. He's crying. He's weeping. He says, my my son's dead. He died in a car accident. And we are now completely broken because we know the state of the relationship between the father and the son. It's broken. There's things unsaid. There's things undealt with. Both of them thought they had more time because you see the son was only in his early 30s. But this last period of time where the father and the sons were at odds, it ended up being the last few years of this son's life. Because it's easy for us to just go through this message and go, you know, it's not that big a deal if I leave something undone. It's a huge deal. And whether it's a calling from God or it's a relationship or it's a struggle with sin, we can't leave it undone. So we don't know how much time we're going to have. We don't know how much time the people around us are going to have. And if you need to have a conversation with someone, there's some things that are unsaid that are on your heart to say. Sometimes it's not even the negative things, but it's the positive things. Like, you know what? You're the best thing that ever happened to me. I love you so much. You're incredible. I'm so thankful that God has put you in my life. Or, you know, these are some differences and these are some things that we don't see the same way. But can we put those aside for the sake of of being in relationship? What if you really knew that you only had five more years to live? What if I knew that? How intentional and intense would we be about some of the areas of struggle that we have? Say, I can't allow this to be a part of my life anymore. We never know. 
We don't know. It happens so fast, just like that. And life's changed forever. A loved one's gone forever. You're home to, to be with the Lord. So may we redeem the time and through relationship with God, really be able to complete all of those things that he's given us to do. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and pray together.